Matthew chapter 1. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, there's an Old Testament and New Testament. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 18. If you want to hear the sermon on verses 1 through 17, you can go online. We have it up there, but um, the sound quality is bad because of some issues we had last week with um, sound equipment. So sorry about that. You can't hear it. You just turn your stereo all the way up to do so. Um, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, and consider what you say here. We pray that you would work by your spirit so that to turn on the lights in our dark minds so that we would see the truth of your word and understand it and love it so that we might repent before it and rejoice in who you are and what you've done, that your spirit would speak through your word and change us as people. Pray for those who don't believe who are here that you would work in them. Pray for those who believe who are here that you would work in us as well that Jesus might be exalted in all things, that your people might be saved, that we might be a people who, who are your people and that you would be our God. We are thankful that you are God with us in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Every year at this time, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. We call it the Advent season, which means the, the coming of Jesus or the first coming of Jesus. And while he likely was not born this time of year, you recognize that, right? This was likely not the time of year in which he was actually born. This is the time on our calendar when we mark his coming. The beauty of this holiday, in my opinion, is that we get to discuss the question that's begged every Christmas. People from all over our country anyway, I think by the providential hand of God, have two occasions on their calendar in which they tend to show up at church. One is at Christmas time, and the other's at Easter time. And in both cases, there's a question begged. Why did Jesus come at Christmas and at Easter? Why did he die, and what's this resurrection all about? And so to answer that question, or the question really of Christmas, why did he come, I want to walk through this passage in the Gospel of Matthew briefly with you. And I want to look really at two overarching, and, and really not only overarching, but intertwining reasons that are given in this passage by Matthew for the coming of Jesus. Here's the first reason. Jesus came to be our Savior. Jesus came to be our Savior. Look with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ 
And that isn't his last name. I stressed that last week. He was not also known as Mr. Christ. Okay? That is a title. Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom Israel had waited for. And the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and so you understand what that's about, um, a betrothal is like an engagement in our culture. But here's the distinction. Betrothal is much stronger in nature. When you were betrothed, you would go through a betrothal process as a bride. That would be a public ceremony of betrothal. When that betrothal happened, you were now legally husband and wife. Now, you had not um, participated yet in your conjugal rights because the wedding day hadn't yet happened. So you hadn't consummated the marriage, but you were betrothed. And now what happened is the groom would leave, and the groom would take off, and the bride would daily prepare herself for the day that, the, that this groom would return during this betrothal period, for this betrothal period. And what happened in that, in that betrothal period is she's waiting. One day, the groom would return, and when he returned, he would come with the bridal party, and when he arrived with the bridal party, what would then happen is the wedding. So the bride didn't know the day of her wedding. She just prepared herself. She didn't prepare for the wedding ceremony. And when the groom rode into town with, his, with the wedding party, that was the day of the wedding. The wedding would occur then, and they would have about a week-long reception. So our receptions are very short. The whole town would usually shut down. They have a week-long reception. But this betrothal was as binding as we see marriage in that sense. You had to have a divorce to get out of it. And when his mother Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph at a young age, probably 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that age range, before they came together, in other words, before they consummated on the wedding day, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew just says this fairly, you know, um, concisely and, and somewhat in a way that he kind of he, he wants to sort of dignify what's happened here. And so he just kind of mentions, she's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And, and that's not, he, he doesn't, he's not lost on him that that's unusual. That's an unusual thing. In some way, the Holy Spirit has worked to bring about this pregnancy in Mary, this pregnancy of Jesus, this virgin conception that's happened. In Luke, we hear the term used a bit differently. The way Luke talks about it is that, there, that the Holy Spirit a sense, hovers over Mary's womb or broods over Mary's womb, picking up the language from Genesis 1 that is quite similar there because in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered or brooded over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit is doing that as he's going to form all things together for the good of man through his word, the Logos, Jesus. And God spoke, or he spoke, and said, let there be light, and there was light. So the Holy Spirit is brooding over creation, and the Holy Spirit is here brooding in Luke chapter 1 over Mary. And the same thing is happening in both occasions. The Holy Spirit is giving life. That is what he does. He is the giver of life, and he's bringing about life here, just as he's breathed into the nostrils of Adam. Because that word in the Hebrew, so you understand, that word ruach, which is spirit, is also breath. He is the giver of life. He is the one who breathes life into things. And he breathed life into Mary's womb in the person of Jesus Christ. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, 
resolve to divorce her quietly. What happened here? They get betrothed. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. When she finds out that she's pregnant, she goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. Elizabeth is also pregnant with John the Baptist. And Mary stays there for some time and returns, and it comes to be found out that she's pregnant. Now, Joseph finds this out that she's pregnant. She's been gone. She comes back, and she's pregnant. What does Joseph rightly assume? Now, not rightly in the fact that he ends up being correct, but rightly in the sense that any of us would assume the same thing. She must have committed adultery. When she was gone, she must have been participating in sexual relations with another man because she's come back pregnant. And Joseph's a just man. In other words, that means he's a follower of the law, of the law of Moses. And so he resolves, it says, to divorce her quietly. He's a just man, and so under the law of Moses, in this theocratic nation of Israel, they're allowed to put her to death. But Joseph is merciful and doesn't want to put her to open shame, and so he goes to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want her dead, and he doesn't want her put to open shame. So he's going to go divorce her quietly. And in, by how does a quiet divorce happen? In that culture, all you had to do was take two witnesses with you, give the woman a writ of divorce, and you were divorced. And so he was going to go do that. He had resolved to do it. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Most likely Gabriel, who appears to Mary in Luke 1, but we're not sure, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, bringing us back to that emphasis that this is a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus comes through the line of Abraham and King David. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Which in the Hebrew is the word Joshua. The Greek is the word Iesus, Jesus. It means Yahweh or the Lord saves. That's what the name means. You shall call him the Lord saves. And the reason? For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Quoting from Isaiah 7 which means God with us. And I'll return to that verse in a little bit. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So that we're clear, we do not believe that Mary stayed in a state of perpetual virginity. He didn't know his wife. Know her is a nice Hebrew way of talking about the consummation of marriage. It's discreet. He didn't know her until, what? Until she had given birth to a son. Then he knew her. And he called his name Jesus. What's interesting here is that Matthew points out to us twice that this angel had told him that you're going to call him Jesus. And then he does call him Jesus. And that is culturally the way in which adoption occurred when the stepfather, in this case, the man married to the woman, names the child, he has now adopted him as his own. And thus Jesus, while not physically from Joseph's line, is an heir of, jo- of the promises made to Joseph's line. So what's the, what's the problem that Jesus is coming to resolve? I mean, this is great. 
great story. Why is all this happening? Why are we told this story? We're told specifically that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what problem do our sins cause us that we need to be saved from them? Is it just the discomfort of life? Is it just tragedy and bad things that happen? No, it's separation from God that's the ultimate problem. It's that because of our sins, he is not our God, and we are not his people. That's what the biblical narrative is discussing. This is humanity's great problem. Jesus did not primarily come to make you a better person or to provide you with greater health and prosperity and happiness. He did not come to help you clean up your life. He did not come to give you a better marriage or better principles for business. He didn't come to provide you with new laws to keep or new ethics to employ. Now, Jesus may accomplish some of these things, but the ultimate reason he came is found in his name. He will save you from your sins. He has come to save you. He's come to reconcile you with God. Look, we're sinners. We are sinners. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, we are sinners by nature and by choice. God created us to love him and others. That's what he created us to do, right? Love him and others. And sadly, in sin, our love turned from God and others to self. Our hearts are, as the Protestant reformer Martin Luther said, curvatus and say. They are curved in on themselves. That's how our hearts are. The condition of turned in on me. And there's nothing uglier and more hideous than self-centeredness, is there? That's why the last thing we need is more self-esteem or more self-love. Our problem is that we love ourselves. We're constantly bent toward ourselves. And you may object, but some people are self-loathing. They think lowly of themselves. Well, let me be clear about this. You do them no favors by replacing their constant negative thoughts of self with constant positive thoughts of self. You merely redirect their pride and self-centeredness. And the problem is we are focused on self. And this drives this drives all of our sin. Our sin is really summed up as self-love, self-centeredness. Let me show you how self-love underpins all other sin by just showing you how it underpins all of the violations of the Ten Commandments. Now think about this. We love ourselves, and so we create gods to look like us because we can't imagine a God who would offend our sensibilities. He offends my sensibilities, so he has to look like me I can't believe what this says because that offends what I think. My God can't be that way. That's because your God is you and not someone external to you. And you can't be that way, so he can't be either, right? The Bible calls us having other gods and making idols. It's a violation of the first and the second commandment. And whenever we do appeal to God, we do so to use him for our own ends. We make him into some kind of cosmic Santa Claus or divine butler who is available to give us what we want and who we can push the call button for whenever we need something. And then we call that prayer. And we only spend time with him when it fits in our schedule. You see, he's our servant who exists to answer our call and who gets my time when I feel like giving it to him. The Bible calls this taking the Lord's name in vain and failure to keep the Sabbath. We see our parents as people who exist to serve our needs. 
When their commands or advice get in the way of our plans and hopes, we sweep them aside as not being worth listened to or obeyed. And as they grow older, we send them off to a home so they don't cramp our lifestyles and push their financial well-being off onto the government because it might pinch our pockets. The Bible calls us not honoring your father and mother. We see people who get in in our way in life as being a problem. If they take from me and cause harm to me, then they will draw my ire and my hatred and perhaps even a physical response, and the Bible calls this murder. We see the opposite sex, and in some cases, the same sex, as people to be used for our own gratification. Sex is not a giving of oneself for the sake of another, but it becomes a taking for our own good and pleasure. The Bible calls this adultery. We take what is not ours. You might say, but I don't steal. Maybe I've stolen someone's money or, or some stuff. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But I bet money you've stolen your boss's time. Your boss probably doesn't pay you to play on Facebook during the day. Ever done that? You've stolen some of his time. The Bible calls this theft. We subtly skew the truth to uphold our own reputation or to tear down someone else. We gossip and slander. We leave out bits of information. We allow half-truths about people to masquerade around as whole truths about them. We say whatever is necessary to uphold ourselves and to make ourselves feel good, and the Bible calls this lying or bearing false witness. We desire what belongs to others. We see the wealthy and assume they don't need all that. Why shouldn't they share some of that with the rest of us? We see our neighbor's wife or car or house or boat and wish that thing belonged to us. We complain that we don't have enough. We aren't thankful and content with what we have, and the Bible calls us coveting. But what I want you to notice about all of those things is there's one trend line that goes through all of them, that we're takers. We are those who think of self above all else. And there's nothing more devilishly ugly than a self-centered taker. We aren't givers who think of God and others above all else. We're the opposite of law keepers, as the whole law is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So herein lies the problem. We are sinners. We are those who are turned in on ourselves. We are takers and not givers. And this sin separates us from, the lo- from, <clears throat> from our holy and loving God. This sin incurs his just wrath, a wrath in which he will eternally display his displeasure with self-centeredness. And to add insult to injury, because we are sinners by nature and by choice, we can't resolve our problem. We can't fix ourselves. The gospel is not, in spite of the bumper stickers, is not that God is a God of second chances. See, that's awful news. That isn't good news. You screwed it up the first time. God's going to give you another chance. You know what you're going to do with the second chance, don't you? And even if we could fix ourselves through our second chance, we can't make up for our debt of sin. Think about this from two perspectives. One, if you were a criminal who committed a crime, you you had gone out and, let's say, ran a red light, and then you were standing before the judge for your, your, your fine and traffic, and the judge said, well, why should I, why should I let you? Are you guilty or, or not guilty? The guy says, well, I, I'm, I'm really not guilty. What do you mean you're not guilty? You should let me go. Why? I, it's true I ran that one red light, but, but I stopped at all the other ones. You're right, Your Honor. I killed that person, but I let everybody else live. See, that's what we do, right? We think that somehow we can offer our good works versus something we sin and think that somehow that's going to cover. It doesn't work that way. Justice doesn't work that way. Further, you're a finite being. 
When you commit a sin against an infinite God, you incur an infinite debt. As St. Anselm had said around the turn of the first millennia, he made the argument that the problem with us is that we think about our sin as a finite act and we don't recognize the, the value of the object against whom we sin. If he is an infinite being, we've incurred a debt that's in line with who he is, the value of his being, which is an infinite debt, and we can't pay it because we're finite beings. And that's why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. He came to pay our debt of sin so that we can be reconciled to God. In order to pay our debt, he must be both God and man. He must be man to be our representative, and he must be God to pay our infinite debt. And that's why Matthew tells the story as he does. He wants us to understand that this Jesus has the pedigree to be our Savior, He is the child of promise coming through Abraham and David's line, and he is the God-man. He is conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. He is a man. He is conceived and born of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is God. Now, how do I know that this activity of the Holy Spirit points to Jesus' identity as divine? Well, first, because in verse 23, Jesus flat out tells us that he, or Matthew flat out tells us that Jesus is God with us. But second, if we look at the other passages that are parallel passages to this, because we are people who believe Scripture interpret Scripture. If you look at Luke chapter 1, we hear this stated to us in verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And if you look there also to John, the next book, John chapter 1, in his prologue, John starts off with this statement, in the beginning was the Word. Now John is mirroring here Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now verse 14. And the word, speaking of this day in which Emmanuel is born, in which Jesus is born, and the word became flesh. The Logos became man and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, when we take this pa- these passages together with Matthew, we find out that Matthew's, while Matthew's emphasis is not specifically on Jesus as the Son of God or God incarnate, Matthew is in fact implying and assuming this. And it's important because none other than God himself can appease his wrath. We're sinful and finite. God is just and infinite. Thus we have neither the moral purity necessary to be the Savior, nor do we have the actual ability to pay the infinite penalty. And because he's a man... He is able to be everything we failed to be in this life and to be our representative incurring God's wrath. Because he's God, he's able to incur against himself infinite wrath. And that's what makes Christmas hopeful. Christmas tells us God loves us. 
tells us that he loves even those who hate him. It tells us that while we are takers, he's a giver. While our love is directed to self, his love is eternally directed to others. Eternally directed to others. Because he's not a single person God, he's a holy trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally in a love relationship. Always having a love that's outgoing. And he creates out of the overflow of that love, and he redeems out of the overflow of that love. He is a giver, and while our love is often or tends to be directed to self, his love is eternally directed to others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For in this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his Son as a propitiation, a satisfaction of wrath for our sins. We also remember each Christmas that behind the manger looms the cross. He was born in a manger and he was born for a cross. He was going to the cross as the ultimate demonstration of God's love. The cross shouts out to us that sin is so devilishly ugly and self-centered that God had to punish that sin just to relate to us. And at the same time, that God's love is so beautiful and other-centered that God would punish our sin upon his own son, upon himself, that he would be able to relate to us. Jesus, the glorious eternal son of God, born in a manger so that we who were born enemies of God might be adopted as sons of God. We sing it this way, mild, he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. But I want to drive at a second overarching and intertwined reason for the coming of Jesus before we close, and here's what it is. This will go quicker. Jesus, our Savior, is God with us. As Matthew's laying out the story, he is sure to point us to the birth of Jesus, fulfilling the prophecy in verse 22 and 23. Look there. All this took place. All this, all this stuff about the birth of Jesus took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, he wants us to know that Jesus is God with us. And he must be God with us to save us. He is the child that Isaiah spoke of coming through the virgin. The child who would be God with us and who would save his people. In Isaiah chapter 7, we read the account of a man named King Ahaz. King Ahaz was over the divided kingdom of Israel, over the area called Judah. So you know, you had David and Solomon who had united the kingdom of Israel, and after that you had several wicked and somewhat good kings off and on who had divided the kingdom of Israel into separate parts. And there was a king over the area of Judah named Ahaz. And Ahaz was fearful because a problem was occurring, and that's that the Assyrians were growing in power. The Assyrians were the most powerful nation on earth at the time. They're like the, the, you know, correspondent to the USA today. They were the most powerful nation on the earth. And Judah would be like Congo, right? Congo versus the U.S. Not, wouldn't be such a good war, would it? Be over probably in a day. And Ahaz was the king over this area. He was concerned about Assyria. But Ahaz was also concerned about a couple of the other neighboring nations who were smaller nations like his who were broken off from Israel or Judah because two of those kings had decided they were going to come together to oppose the Assyrians. 
And these two kings said, we're going to take down the Assyrians, and Ahaz, you need to join up with us to take on the Assyrians. And if you don't join up with us to take on the Assyrians, then we're going to come take you out. So here's Ahaz's choice. Join up with the two nations that want to take out, want to fight against the Assyrians. That's like Congo joining with Uganda and Kenya to take on the U.S. Or, in some way, try to curry the favor of Assyria. Try to get in good with Assyria and bow to what they want so that you can protect yourself and get their help against these other two nations. And at that time, Isaiah the prophet spoke, and he spoke to Ahaz and said, listen, you need to, you need to trust the Lord. The Lord will provide a son through the virgin, and you'll, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that had a significant understanding for the people of Israel. It had a significant meaning, which traces all the way through Scripture, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But he's God with us. So what are you going to do? And Ahaz decided not to trust the Lord. And he decided to side with the Assyrians. And they began to worship the Assyrian gods and participate in the sins that Assyria was participating in. And all Israel soon became a conquered nation. It became conquered by Babylon, actually, by King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came in and swept in and conquered the entire area, and the Babylonian Empire ruled. And after Babylon came the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and after Medo-Persia came the kingdom of Greece. And after Greece came the kingdom of Rome. And the time when Matthew's written, the time when this gospel's written, the time when Jesus is born, in this whole century that this all occurs, they're under the rule of Rome, Israel is. They're under Rome, the Roman Empire. And what's been true from Ahaz forward is this. Israel has been a conquered nation. They've been a people who God is not with of people who are defeated and in slavery. And that's a problem. And in the midst of that problem, Jesus is born. And under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire, Matthew announces that the promise God made to Ahaz through Isaiah is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. The virgin has given birth, and the child is Emmanuel, God with us. Why does that matter so much? Because it's only if the Messiah is with us, is God with us, that he can really save us and it takes us back to the real problem, the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem for Israel is not that she's a conquered nation by other nations. That's only a picture of the real problem. See, all of those pictures, Israel's exile and conquering by those other nations, Israel being conquered in slavery to Egypt, are all things that occurred as pictures of the coming Messiah, of the fact that you are conquered and in slavery and captured by who? by evil empires. And ultimately, your ultimate problem is that you are conquered and enslaved by sin. And that's all just a picture of your slavery and conquering by sin. And God is freeing you from those people and promising a savior from those nations. Really, at the end of the day, what he's doing is he's pointing to this son who would come, who would fulfill that promise, who would be God with us, who would usher in the kingdom of God and bring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, the ultimate problem for Israel and for all peoples is that we're in slavery to sin and separated from God. He is not our God, and we are not his people, and he is not with us. And that's how the story runs through Scripture. Think of the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve are God's people. He's their God, and he is with them. After the fall, they are no longer God's people. They're kicked out of God's place. He is no longer their God, and they are no longer his people. He is no longer with them. 
God makes a promise, though, that a seed of the woman will come. A son will be born who will conquer the head of the serpent and who will usher in a new kingdom. He will crush his head and usher in a new kingdom through his own bruising, through his own death. And God begins to fulfill that initial promise by, through Abraham. He seeks out Abraham, a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees. And at the center of the promise he makes to Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abraham. Through your seed, I will bless all the nations. And at the center of that promise in Genesis 17 is this, I will be your God and you will be my people. See, he will once again be God with us. And when the people in Israel of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, God calls out Moses to go to Pharaoh and redeem the people, to save the people. Moses doesn't believe that he has what it takes to go to Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man in the world today, and tell him, listen, I want you to let God's people go. The Lord says let God's people go. So you understand God's people here are in slavery, the most powerful nation in the world, and they are the base of Egypt's economic system. And Moses is going to walk into Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and say, I'd like to take the base of your economic system and go out in the wilderness to worship God. And Pharaoh, of course, is going to laugh, and Moses knows it. And so Moses objects and says, God, who am I? Who am I? And God tells him, I will be with you. See, later in the Exodus account, as the people are going into the land, they've gotten out of Egypt, and now they're going to the promised land. God says they can go, but because of their sin, he says he will not go with them. And Moses objects to this, realizing that all that matters is that God is with them. It's all that matters. And the same understanding carries through all the Old Testament covenants. All that matters, the whole of life is hung on this one question, is God with us? Is he our God and are we his people? So when Jesus is born, when the Savior comes, Matthew wants us to understand that this baby is God with us. He is the one coming to make us eternally God's people and to be God with us. See, we're not alone. We're not without hope. We may feel isolated or far from God at times, but he's drawn near to us in history. Jesus is God with us, and we need only to look to him and trust in him. And you know what happens at the end of this? In the book of Revelation, with all of its bizarre imagery, when you get to the end of it, you know what you find? You find the people, in a sense, back in the garden, and and what is said to them? I am your God, and you are my people. See, Jesus is the one who makes that all happen. He's the one from Genesis 3.15 throughout all of the Old Testament that's being pointed to. It's all preparation for him. And he's the one from the day of his birth and life and death on the cross and resurrection from the dead to all the rest of the New Testament points back to. We only need to look to him and trust in him. And Matthew understands the importance of this so much that he brackets his whole gospel with his idea. You know that? This whole gospel of Matthew is bracketed with the idea of God with us. There's a Hebrew literary device you probably haven't heard of called an inclusio. Called an inclusio. It's like the bookends of, of, of a book. So when, when Hebrews would often write, even though this is written in Greek, they employed literary devices, and one of them is called an inclusio. It's like bookends. It's like um, a bracket for something. And it says that everything in here is in some way about this. This is somehow thematic for the rest of what's contained in this literature. And what's interesting about this is Matthew bookends this entire book with this phrase, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now go to the end of the book of Matthew, 
and look at the Great Commission. As Jesus is going, he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you hear it? Jesus has born God with us. He's come to seek and save the lost. He's come to bring mercy and grace. He's come so that God may be our God and so that we will be his people. And so the question today is, are you his? Are you looking to Jesus? If not, look to him now and be saved. You look to Jesus and God will be with you. You will be his people and he will be your God. If you are looking to Jesus, if you are his then know that he sends us as his ambassadors to make him known among those whom he is not. And he is with us as we go. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, Behold, he come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would work powerfully by your word and spirit in our hearts that we'd rejoice in the fact that you were God with us in Jesus. You saved us in him. For those who don't know you, I pray that you would work in them to draw them to see the beauty of Christ and the hope that he is. They would be saved as well. And Father, we pray that we'd remember this time of year that the birth of Jesus is such great hope for us because he is God with us, because he has brought us back to you. Because his main, behind his major looms the cross. And it's upon the cross that he paid our penalty. So that we could be yours again. We could walk with you eternity, rejoicing, for eternity, rejoicing in your son Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.